we don't know how to cure endo, but we know how to make living with endo a whole lot better and improve quality of life. And to get to that kind of stage of thriving with endo, it's going to take a number of years. It's not going to be a linear journey. Some you know months, you'll feel like you're taking huge leaps forward and then there'll be some setbacks and that's normal. It's all about just continuing to make progress. You're listening to the Well Woman Podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Lee, women's menstrual cycle educator, natural fertility coach, and daytime mermaid. This is a place where we discuss all things periods, poo, ovulation, fertility, and sex. Join me weekly as we rediscover our menstrual cycles, unlock its superpowers, and guide you back into your cyclical nature. You are listening to episode 224 of the Well Woman podcast. Thank you for being here and jumping back into another episode. If you're brand new, welcome. We are talking with Christy Lee today. Christy, I was so excited to meet Christy. She's a fellow Aussie and she is an accredited practicing dietitian with expertise in endometriosis, but not just endometriosis, also gut imbalances like IBS and so much more. Christy is the founder of Christy Lee Nutrition and her, along with her team, help endo warriors from all over Australia and the world inside their flagship digital program called Beat the Endo Belly to rapidly reduce their period pain, bloating, funky poops and fatigue. And in this episode, we are getting really, well, we go on a few rants. Let me just clear that up straight away, but we are getting really in-depth and juicy around food and diagnosis myths around endometriosis. So we are busting myths in this episode. We talk all about education around the cycle, education around endometriosis. We talk about the health field, the Western practicing medical health field in regards to endometriosis and so much more. You're going to get a lot out of this episode, whether you have endometriosis yourself or interested in just learning more about gut health and how to better support your body with medical professionals or if you have any gut imbalances, don't forget Chrissy is also a gut expert and that's how she kind of got into discovering endometriosis in the first place. So enjoy this episode. Christy, welcome to the Well Woman podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to chat to you today, Jim. I'm actually really excited too. For those who don't know, this is my first podcast recording since being away for six weeks and I'm, I love doing these and having good old chats. So I'm so excited that you're my first back. So thank you for that. And you are super glowing, by the way, for anybody who can't see. <laughs> Gem looks beautiful. I have a bit of, have a, bit of a tan, a, bit of a, <laughs> a close to the hemisphere tan. Um, thank you. Before we like jump in, we're talking about endometriosis today, which I think is such an important topic. And there's some great little insights you're going to be sharing about some new things that are happening in the world of endo. But before we do, let's get to know you because our listeners are going to be meeting you for the very first time. You're a fellow Aussie. I don't often get to interview Aussies and I love that. So tell us like what day of your cycle are you on today? How are you checking in? How do you feel in this moment? And then let's learn more about you. So I'm on day 18 at the moment and I'm a big cycle tracker. I've been cycle tracking for about five years when I finally came off the pill um, and I usually ovulate on day 19. So I'm predicted to come up to that very soon. So at the moment I feel really well. Um, I have lots of energy. 
Um, you know, I don't, I'm not someone who really suffers too much with PMS symptoms. So I don't really often know where I am in my cycle just based on how I feel or symptoms. I feel mostly well all the time. Um, but cycle tracking um, is what has really helped me know exactly where I am and then maybe listen in a little bit more to the signals maybe that I've ignored for a long time and, yeah, um, take advantage of that knowledge. I love that. How does it feel after like five years of cycle tracking? Like how does it feel to just know your body so well? I think um, I, I feel empowered to have that control back because and, I, you know, I know you probably share a lot about this, but many of us have that frustration that we weren't educated properly about menstrual cycles. And so I haven't felt connected previously to my cycle, you know, even as a, an early um, health professional in my early career um, that you know, I didn't even know the four phases of the cycle. I just think that's crazy. Like it's, you know, not only was it not really taught at school, but it also wasn't taught at university for us dietitians. And it wasn't until I did my women's health, fertility and pregnancy training that I actually really understood the phasing of it, the hormonal changes. Um, And I kind of, I guess when I learned that felt embarrassed almost that I didn't previously know that, Um, you know, when you live in a body that menstruates, isn't this something that you should know? And then there's you go through that blame cycle of like, where did things go wrong? Did I not take enough initiative to understand my cycle better? But I really do think, as you probably agree, it comes down to um, education in schools uh, and it just is a whole missing piece. Um, so then, you know, moving into understanding my cycle better, five years of tracking, um, it just feels good. It just feels like I know where I'm at. I know... I know how to manage my fertility. I know how to avoid pregnancy if I want to. I know how to fall pregnant if I want to. Um, and that feels empowering. Super empowering. And I love your answer. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> it's not often you get to meet someone who's been tracking for half a decade. If you just put that into like, you know, timeline, half a decade is a long time. Yeah, that's a long time. Definitely. Whatever, whatever five times 13 is, that's roughly how many like trackers you've done. And, um, I'm terrible at math. I don't have a calculator. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, but that's a lot, right? It's a lot. And I think it's really empowering. So thank you for sharing. And I'd love to add one thing is I really believe it's actually the parents for all the guardians responsibility to educate. There is so much pressure on schools to do so much already, like education on so many aspects. And whilst they do sex ed, And from my understanding, sex ed really came in because of a lot of unplanned pregnancies happening really early at early stages of teens post menarche. And so there was this big focus on not falling pregnant and a lot of fear around the cycle kind of started there. But the responsibility of education actually comes from the parents and it's not when they get to 10 or when they get to 12, it's actually from birth, you know, leaving your menstrual cup out, leaving your pads, your period undies hanging up. And letting your kids and their friends and your family see all these things as you leave them out. And I think that's the silent education that becomes educational. Yep. You're 100% right there. This is my two bobs anyway. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're completely correct. I never heard my mum talk about periods. I learned about periods in school one day Mm -hmm. and then I came home and had to ask more questions about that because she'd never discussed it before. I'd never heard about cervical fluids. So, you know, when those changes all happened, I just thought something was wrong with me. Um, and, and I even think we should go as far as to make sure that the boys are equally as educated as the girls. 
Um, and like coming from parents too, like you said, it, it shouldn't be that mum sits down with her daughter to explain these things. Mum sits down with her children to explain it because then otherwise you end up having to explain it to your boyfriend when you're 16 and it's all very awkward. <laughs> it is. And like we could go on such a tangent and not talk about endometriosis here, but like, so when I met Brenton, my partner, when I was dating, right. And so what do you do for work, Gemma? I'm like, well, I'm a menstrual cycle educator. Really? That's what I do. Um, people like the had being heterosexual I was dating men so there wasn't women on the scene but men either gravitate and like oh my god that's so cool tell me more or they're like you're fucking crazy and they just run a thousand miles and when I because I teach at schools semi-regularly a little bit less since COVID boys ask more question than girls and I prefer to teach co-ed especially in a co-ed school because it's happening and why can't we just make it a communal conversation? You know, sex ed is a communal conversation. Why can't we make that a communal conversation? And I think going back to what you mentioned about your mom sharing, like my mom didn't share either. Don't worry, mom. I don't not love you, but it's also because they had shame and they weren't taught. So they didn't know how to teach. It's kind of like, if you're not taught to tie your shoelaces, then they, then you'll never be able to teach someone to tie their shoelaces. And I think, we're going to be the generation that changes that. So thanks for being on the journey. With How you. exciting. <laughs> anyway, total rant. So tell us, Christy, who are you? And how did you get into all of this education around endometriosis for those who haven't seen your social media profiles and um, fertility and why you moved from fertility into endo? Like where did you become this endo warrior? What happened there? Yeah. So um, for anybody who doesn't know me, I'm Christy. I live in Perth and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. Um, when I first started my career, as many dietitians do, we start out in general practice. And, you know, I did that for a number of years and it felt very unfulfilling um, for various reasons. I guess it just wasn't um, the types of conditions that you treat and the, um, the, the group of people that you work with aren't offers often as motivated um, to work with. So, you know, I was sort of lost for a little bit there thinking like, okay, but what do I, who do I love seeing? Who are the clients that really, really light me up? And it all began with um, thinking about how much I loved gut health and how much you could make such a shift in somebody's life with nutrition for gut problems like irritable bowel syndrome. And I decided I'm going to go and learn more about this. So I went and did my IBS training through Monash University. Um, and that was actually the first time I ever learned about endometriosis. There was a whole module there that talked about the connection between endometriosis and IBS. I'd never heard of endo before this. Um, and was just fascinated that there was a women's health condition that typically has a lot of these IBS symptoms as well. Um, and then it was a couple of years later that I decided that I wanted to kind of up-level my education again. I became very interested in the cycle, in women's health, in pregnancy and fertility. And so I did further training again in nutrition for pregnancy, fertility, um, and just women's health in general. And that was when endometriosis came up again for me. So through this kind of like learning experience, I guess I was sort of morphing the way that I um, assess my clients in consults. You know, previously I would never ask questions about someone's period um, in a nutrition assessment. It's, you know, you, you wouldn't think that that was something that would be so impacting um, around nutrition. We just didn't have that education. Um, and so it was about that time when I started actually putting together my two, um, I guess, education backgrounds, IBS and women's health together. I decided to go and start my own business, started consulting privately 
And I had this wild idea that I was going to be seeing mostly pregnant women who had maybe like constipation issues. I didn't think too much about endo at the time, um, but actually the people that were coming through my door and seeking support were exactly this population of people. They had different issues with their periods. They also had the gut issues. And because I had that dual skill set, I was really kind of neatly positioned to be able to support them with it. Um, But at this point, I didn't know the whole background on endo in terms of the hardship that they have been through with misdiagnosis, not being um, heard by their doctors, the amount of, um, I guess, like um, medical gaslighting is the best way to describe it, that they have experienced in not being believed about their symptoms. And uh, as I mentioned earlier before, I've never personally experienced a significant, you know, PMS kind of like lead up to my period, um, minimal pain throughout my life. And so when I had clients coming and telling me that their periods were so painful, they couldn't go to work, they couldn't get out of bed, they'd be vomiting, um, you know, this kind of like level of pain was just like, what do you mean? And and for them, they didn't know that that wasn't normal, that they thought this is what periods do. I've been told by every single doctor that, it is normal to have this intensity of period pain and, you know, what they just kind of get sent home with the pill or whatever hormonal therapy to go and manage it, take some more painkillers. And I guess I was the first practitioner for a lot of these clients who said to them, no, <laughs> like that's actually not normal at all. Um, you shouldn't like your period shouldn't stop you from working. It shouldn't stop you, you from enjoying your daily activities, your quality of life. Um, and because I had known about endometriosis through that study, I started educating about it and I started, have you heard of endo? And, you know, not to overstep the doctor's, um, you know, like diagnosis here, but, you know, a lot of these women hadn't really even heard of endo themselves. So I helped guide them back to their doctor with, you know, a written letter. I had to get on the phone because they were going back and the doctors were just pretty much going back to the same old routine diagnosis of just, you know, this is just, you know, period pain. Um, So it really did take to actually like getting on the phone and hounding down, you know, the doctors like, this is not normal. This is like, this is not something someone should live with. Have you considered endometriosis? So um, it was some of those first clients that I had who were then, um, I supported them through to getting to a gynecologist who then diagnosed them. And I guess like that whole experience of going on the journey of seeing how, I guess, neglected they were as a, as a you know, population of people who really needed support um, and then all the way through to getting answers and clarity on what was going on for them, I think was just so rewarding for me. Um, I'd finally found what really, really lit me up. Um, and so I kind of just decided, I was like, wow, like, I should just do this. Like, this is like what makes me get out of bed every day thinking about supporting people like this. Um, And I've never done anything else since. It's just like the last four years, it's been my entire career. Um, And I just love it. And I know why you love it. It's very rewarding supporting someone, understanding new aspects of their their body and their cycle. Um, Thank you so much for sharing. For those who are watching this on a video, I've just got the sun reflecting. So I've just got really dark as the sun's beaming on me in the afternoon. Um, So much in your story. 
And something that I really, really love, Christy, is that so many people get into a particular aspect of health because they've had an experience. I'm mm. one of those people, you know, I had, I got PCOS after coming off the hormonal contraceptive and I was the same. I'd studied all these different things and I'd worked in food science formulation and not one person had told me about the four phases of the cycle. And I was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> so I, I can really resonate with that. And I love that you my, even though you don't have a personal experience with endo, you can really resonate and support those people. And I feel that there's a lot of people out there. Most endo educators have had endo themselves. And I think you don't have to have had the experience to be a great educator. And so I really love that about you. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Do you know, I just wanted to add like, that's probably what makes me extremely different that of all the other endo dietitians or educators, I'm probably the only one who doesn't have endo. Um, and I had, I had some previous kind of like unusual period symptoms, not so much like PMS pains and things, but irregularities with bleeding and things. And I had been through that kind of back and forth with the doctors who weren't really that interested in investigating the issue. Um, and I think that that frustration for me and my own health it sort of that was what really transferred across when I met these people who were dealing with so much more than I ever dealt with. Mm. Um, and I just think that I just, I mean, I feel like every health professional should at the very core believe someone when they're telling them about their symptoms. And if they don't, I don't think that you're a health professional. Like if you're not someone who's listening and then helping that person take action, then um, yeah, you're either, you know, you've got your own agenda and that's become more important or yeah. I find it hard to understand how this the group of people were so neglected and misheard for so long it's and still are. It's so, it's heartbreaking for me and something that I always think every time I, so I go to the doctors, you know, since having di, um, being diagnosed with PCOS and been, then being undiagnosed with PCOS years later, I still go every six months and just get some regular blood work done as part of like full preconception planning and supporting my body and all the things. And my doctor still never asks me when I go to get my blood done, well, what day of your cycle are you on? Let's write that on the top of your pathology report. You know, there's no question about that. Even when I go to the doctors or if I, like, I'm not someone who generally goes to the doctor when I'm sick or there's something imbalanced going on. I try to work it out elsewhere, other ways. But even if I was to go to the doctor because I had the flu or I was, you know, experiencing bad cramps in my t- tummy or I had, you know, mental health going on or something, they still wouldn't even ask you as a general practicing doctor, okay, well, where are you in your cycle? How's your last few cycles been? Like these are really foundational women's health questions. Yeah. Um, I won't rant on that forever because I know we could both rant on those sorry, <laughs> that topic. Um, but yeah, it, there's a lot of gaps in the marketplace, I think, for practicing um, Western practicing doctors. Yeah. Not, not that they're all bad, but there's a no. lot of opportunity, I would say. Completely. Mm, mm. Well, let's get into what endo is. So can you give us, for those who are listening and like, oh my God, people think they know what endo is, but then I think they really don't really know what endo is. So can you give us an overview of what actually is endometriosis? How does it differ from PCOS? Because mm. I feel like people often put endo and PCOS together and they're very, very different. Um, so if you can give us a run through those two things. Yeah, of course. And I think because the word endometriosis itself is very long and medical sounding, it feels a little bit 
overwhelming, like I guess, like to try and understand that. Um, but very, very simply, um, it comes from the word endometrium. So the endometrial lining of our uterus is a particular type of tissue and a very similar type of tissue. So we call it like endometrial-like tissue is found growing outside the uterus for someone who has endometriosis. So majority of people have this tissue growing inside our uterus. If you have endo, it's growing outside your uterus. And we don't believe that it's exactly the same tissue, but it's similar. Um, so it means that it responds to estrogen. It grows with the menstrual cycle. And then when we have our period, that lining sheds inside our uterus, but also the tissue outside the uterus will also shed as well. And so that that's why during the menstrual phase, there's an exacerbation of pain of bloating, there can be diarrhea, there can be nausea and vomiting. Um, it's a significant condition to have. And I think a big misconception that a lot of people have is that this is something that's just localized to the pelvic area. We actually know that endometriosis is a whole body condition. Tissue, this endometrial like tissue can be found as far as the eye, it's been found in the heart, the lungs, wow. diaphragmatic endo. <laughs> Yeah, so it can travel. It's um, yeah, it's not always just localized to the pelvis, but even more than that, because the symptoms, um, sorry, because of the I guess underlying hallmark features that drive the condition, so this hormone imbalance, inflammation, and then this gut and immune dysfunction, the symptoms can affect more than just your pelvis. It can affect your brain, so your brain fog and fatigue become a big issue. It can affect um, moods, it can affect the way your gut functions. And this is why nutrition becomes such a huge piece to managing it. Um, so yeah, IBS type symptoms, it can affect your cycle. Um, so I think that that's a really good one to debunk because a lot of people do just focus on the pelvis. Um, and then your other part to this question was like difference between endo and PCOS. Mm. Again, yes, very, very completely different conditions. Um, typically with PCOS, we like not everybody has insulin resistance, but that is one of the big features of PCOS. We don't tend to see that so much in endo um, and we don't see painful periods as much in PCOS either. So hormonally, they're quite different. Like PCOS is more characterized by higher androgen or male sex hormone levels, whereas um, endo tends to be more characterized by more higher female sex hormones. Um, completely different. But we do know a lot more about PCOS. Like pepper, they do different things. <laughs> you use them differently. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they do get lumped together. So anyway, I hope that that's helpful. Really helpful. And I think it's helpful because if I'm listening to this, I always think of the listeners when I ask the questions. If I'm listening to this and I've got a friend with endometriosis, but I've only had PCOS, how can I understand the differences between the two? And I think that... The other really important thing that I know that you would harp on about too, Christy, is that no one person's experience is the same as another person's experience. So with PCOS, the diagnosis factors are so different. You know, there's like big category. And as long as you've got three of these and you've had these tests and that's it. Whereas endo, it's kind of like you have some endometrium growing somewhere else other than the uterus, but that could be anywhere for different mm -hmm. people. And like you said, maybe the eye or the brain or the lung, who knows? Um, that's really fascinating. So I'd love to ask you, like, what are the biggest 
things you see in all of your clients. So if I was to say like, what are the biggest imbalances I see in my clients? You know, I could say like sleep and I can say really poor food habits in their, you know, luteal premenstrual phase. But when it comes to endometriosis, what are the biggest common signs that you see in those people apart from period pain? Mm, Well, I mean, I guess I want to talk a bit to gut health here because it's very typical that particularly amongst um, medical professionals that they will only look for period pain and, um, you know, just pelvic pain. I guess it's like a, a huge focus on that, whereas the long list of symptoms that people with endo typically get get can extend to pain that refers to their back. It can refer down their leg or in their crutch because there's a, um, I guess, like a nervous system involvement in the pain. Um, people may also get bloated. And I cannot tell you how many clients have told me over the years that they've gone to their doctor about bloating issues and they've not understood that there ever was a connection or have even educated their patients that your bloating has nothing to do with your endometriosis, which is a completely missed opportunity. Um, Bloating is, we see bloating in about 90% of people with endo. It is the most common gastrointestinal symptom associated with it. Um, and then we see a constipation and diarrhea and about somewhere between 70 and 80%. Um, so I just feel like that's a whole missed piece of the puzzle because there is such a huge focus on it being like a period issue. Um, these symptoms also don't necessarily present just around the menstrual cycle or the menstrual phase. You may, ex- many endo warriors experience pain, um, bloating, gut dysfunction, fatigue at any time of the month. It's often exacerbated with their menstrual phase and also potentially with their ovulation in some cases too. Um, But generally all day, every day for some people, this can be like a constant symptom that they're dealing with. So I kind of categorize when I meet people um, who I work with, they typically sit in two categories. One category is um, that their symptoms only affect them, you know, cyclically. And then the other category is where they're affected all day, every day um, throughout their life. And I find that um, the younger you are, typically it's sort of, you know, maybe just around your cycle. And then as, as you progress, because the the condition is progressive. It grows and proliferates over the years. It does tend to have more impact. So um, yeah, that's probably what I see the most. Mm. Interesting too, what you mentioned about it, you know, proliferating and, you know, increasing with age. It's kind of like that increases and your fertility decreases. (laughs) It's like these two opposites. Um, But it's also a good identifier to like, as soon as you think something's going on, like let's look at getting some support straight away. And thankfully now we have more doctors or more medical professionals who are aware of endometriosis as opposed to 10 years ago from today or 20 years ago from today. So there's a lot of things going on. And I'd love to ask you the question, what do you think creates endometriosis? Ooh. <laughs> like I often get asked the question, like, why do you think we're menstruating younger and younger than we ever have before? And um, it's a good question. And like, there's so many answers to it, but I'd love to get your insight just off the top of your head. Like there's no wrong or right. It's just your insights. What do you think really contributes to endometriosis in people? Mm. This is the golden ticket question because we don't currently know what causes endometriosis. There's 
a few different theories that exist um, and there's some kind of new emerging theories that we have. So some of the more um, old school theories was the first one was retrograde menstruation. Um, so they thought that there was kind of a backflow of menstrual um, blood going back into the pelvic cavity and that, and, you know, it, it would get caught out there and then it would sort of like stick and grow and do all of that. That theory hasn't really been 100% proven because they now know that we all actually experience some amount of retrograde menstruation, which is interesting. However, um, there are, you know, a majority of people have retrograde menstruation, but that tissue never goes on to become aggressive like endometrial tissue does. Mm. Um, so that theory is kind of by the wayside. Um, there's kind of new emerging understanding about the immune system involvement now because um, endo is becoming increasingly recognized as um, an immune and inflammatory condition, not just a hormonal condition. So I this is what I personally think. I think that there is some amount of retrograde um, backflow of endometrial tissue. That might be how it initially places out there. It's the immune system's job to recognize that tissue go, you don't belong here, destroy it and remove it. And that's what it normally does. But for some reason in the in the case of someone with endometriosis, um, there's some sort of immune dysfunction. It doesn't have this normal, I guess, way of managing this, the displaced cells. And in fact, it actually exacerbates it and turns it into something that has the ability to grow quite aggressively. So I think that there's a huge immune system involvement. You'll get a lot of people that will even call it an autoimmune condition. We're not really there yet to actually call it that. Um, we know that endo has, um, is commonly associated with celiac disease and hypothyroidism as well, or even like Hashimoto's and Graves. So other similar autoimmune conditions, but um, we don't know 100%. But that's my personal thoughts. And I think that a lot of people are on a similar train of thinking that way too. Um, so yeah, I mean, we just need more research to better understand it because once we understand what's happening at the root cause, then we can finally have better treatment options. And we know that there's a huge genetic piece to it. So if your mum, your aunt, or your sister has endo, you're more like, you're, I think 10 times more likely to get it. Mm. So there's obviously a mixture of genetics involved. Maybe there's epigenetics involved. So maybe environmental factors that switch on those genes, um, immune system involvement and yeah, we just, we need to get there because it's taking too long. <laughs> like, come on, team, come on. Come on. Um, yeah, it's so interesting because there's so many factors that are different in our world today than what they were 30 years ago. Mm. And, you know, the, the vagina and the yoni and all the things within that, so the cervix, the uterus, the fallopian tubes, ovaries, they're like sponges and, you know, like my mind's like, is it because we've used tampons for too long or is it because we've used the wrong cleaning detergent on our laundry and our vaginas have been soaking that up for decades? Is it because we've been consuming foods that actually could be detrimental to our immune system instead of strengthening our immune system? Like there's so many. And um, yeah, it's a common complaint I get when I teach at schools, when a girl's like, well, I've been menstruating since I was seven and she's 15. And there's so many things that kind of can contribute to that. And 
you know, is it all the estrogen stuff in our, like in our lives today that can contribute to the estrogen building materials in our body? And yep. oh my God, that's a total rant of all the things we could explore. Oh, but you're right. The hardest thing to understand about, especially women's health is that, is it a problem of us not taking great records historically? Mm. And therefore it's things seemingly are getting either worse or we're menstruating younger, or is it because there's environmental change? Like you think about how exponentially, um, you know, like change is happening for us from even like from the 50s to now, the amount of technology change, the environmental pollution, um, the way we manufacture food. There's so many changes. Like it's just moving at such a rapid rate. Is all of this contributing or is it because we once upon a time didn't perceive women's health issues to be of an interest to scientists and, and medical professionals? And there's just no, there's no good records or logs about this. So, or, and no, no research or experiments to better understand it. Um, and so you sit in this world of just like, is it this, or is it because we just didn't research it? Like, ah. And there's been no money invested in it because it's, it's such a hard, like women's health is such a hard topic to research because every woman's cycle is different. There is no such thing as everyone has a 28 day cycle. No, everyone ovulates on day 14. And so it has to be like a study that's done over such a long period of time and it has to be so monitored, but it's so diverse. It's like, how do you do that? And it takes longer to study women than what it does to study men. And so that's why most studies have been on males because of that reason. And what if you're studying a woman and she falls pregnant and then she's like, fuck, she's out of this. She's out of the study now. <laughs> We've lost one. And you know, that definitely happens. So yeah, it's a very interesting topic. So thanks for like sharing your insights and just your thoughts on it. And I always think, you know, well, if I had something that was debilitating or challenging for me, how could I improve the lifestyle that I live so that I can improve the lifestyle of my family? And so that the, from the get-go, my children are learning a healthier lifestyle that's going to better support their bodies as they develop and grow and, and age. And I think we could all just do that a little bit better. There's always room for improvement, right? Totally. Um, so many rants on this episode. Thank you for going there with me. We're um, good at this. <laughs> we should do this again. Um, I wanted to ask you about myths, right? So food and nutrition and diet myths, there's so many. But relating to endo, what are the myths out there and what would you recommend for people who do have endo around their diet and their nutrition and what they can actually do to create a sustainable cycle or something that feels more sustainable than like, Hey, you just go on the hormonal contraceptive pill and let's just block your body altogether. Yeah. Yeah. And the biggest, like the biggest overarching message here is that not one diet or strategy is going to fit with everybody. Mm. And the first thing you'll do when you Google endo and diet is that you'll get a long list of do not eat foods. There'll be a complete, you know, ban on gluten, dairy, soy, red meat, um, even like, you know, maybe carbs. You might even find things that say cut out nightshades, cut out, like I just call it, I cut it, I call it the cutout diet because it's just, it's this heavy focus on cut out all of this stuff. And that's where you need to, you know, focus. And a lot of people will be like, oh, great. Okay. I'll just do that. And then find themselves in this really miserable place of like, okay, but now I feel deprived. I really miss, you know, some of these foods that used to bring me a lot of joy. And you can easily fall into a binge and restrict cycle. And, you know, women already have enough 
uh, pressure from years of like you know, <laughs> media and magazines and movies about body image and then you throw kind of restrictive diets in the mix and all of a sudden, um, you know, there can become this like obsession over, um, you know, trying to restrict things. And then when you give in, because we're all human beings and we can't constantly have a perfect diet, then there's this like, you know, binge phase of like, damn it, I'm just going to eat everything. I call that like the what the hell effect. You go from forbidden fruit to what the hell, and then you're just back and forth. And it's just, a, it's just an awful place to be. So it's, uh, it, there's a lot of, um, people on the internet as well that will recommend, you know, I had endo and therefore this is what I think really worked for me and this is what healed me. So you should do it too. And I think that we can't use anecdotal evidence like that for everybody. Um, so I guess like that's probably the big thing, like the cutout diet. When it comes to eating for endo, the way that I work with my clients is that the first step we all need to work through is understanding what foods make you thrive and what foods maybe don't make you feel so great. And so rather than it being a focus on cutting out, I call it crowding out. And so, yeah, uh, it's I, I talk about it on Instagram all the time. So Initially, if someone has IBS as well as their endo, so they have these like terrible chronic gut symptoms, there is going to be a, an initial focus on, okay, let's, you know, let's actually get rid of a lot of these symptoms initially by helping relieve you of those and then uncovering what was triggering those symptoms all along um, and then being able to take that information and go, okay, now that I know what foods make me thrive and what foods make me not feel so great, I'm going to focus more on the foods that make me thrive and add more of them in. Naturally, what that does is it just means that there's less room for the foods that didn't make you feel so great and so you're crowding them out rather than cutting out but it's never a you know black and white kind of approach of like all or nothing it's still going to be you know people might say 80 20 that gets thrown around a lot and I think that that's a really you know I do love that concept it's we still need to have some of those foods that we enjoy but maybe don't make us feel a hundred percent it's okay sometimes I call them soul foods because they're sometimes just good for your soul (laughs) they're not maybe good for your body (laughs) I like that too that's a good one as well yeah, so um, I think that it there's it, it needs to be individualized. It needs to be there's a whole mindset piece to it that needs to go in. It's not just um, you know a list of foods to eat and not eat, um, and be supported to make sure that it's sustainable. Because if you can't do something forever, you might as well not start it at all because you're just going to set yourself up on a path of feeling like you're inadequate, you failed at something, um, and you know nutrition and diet is not something that can be a wonderful tool to support you. I love that. I think to something you don't know about me, but I had leaky gut for a few years Mm. and I went through a journey of like, I couldn't find anyone to help me. People were just like, here, take this. This is like 2012 to 2000, early 14. And people would just be like, oh, just take this tonic thing. It'll work. And oh, here, we'll just do this acupuncture. or We'll just do this reflexology. And I was like, okay, I've taken this thing, but there's all these other stuff I could change too, but no one's helping me change any of that. And it was just maybe because there wasn't a lot of communication around leaky gut at that time. There's so much more now. And I was like, well, just fuck you all. I'm just going to go back to what nature does best. And I just ate plants, right? And now there's a term for this. It's called orthorexia. I didn't know about this, but I became really healthy and I loved how I was eating 
but I missed some soul foods. And so I got really mentally challenged by eating a fucking pumpkin quinoa sunflower seed salad. Like I was so like, oh my God, it's going to make me shit myself and I'm going to look six months pregnant. And I think people don't understand the importance of having a healthy relationship with food. And I even laugh at my partner. He's every Friday, he calls it Fat Friday. And so he has a can of soft drink. He's going to laugh if he ever hears this, which he probably never listens to this episode anyway, but he has a packet of chips and he has a can of soft drink. And he's just like, it's my Fat Friday. Even when we're overseas, he's like, it's my Fat Friday. He will do anything he can to find the closest supermarket. Even if it's like drive a scooter 30 minutes to get his favorite chips. I'm like, seriously, what if you just ate chips when you really felt you needed them instead of starving yourself from the soul food all week just to get to Friday? It's his thing. He can work on it himself. But I really believe in what you're saying is that finding that healthy relationship with food and then working out what's really thriving you so that when you don't feel great, you just focus on those foods. And that when you feel like, actually, I feel like I've really got things under control here. I want to go and have fun at that wedding on the weekend. Yeah. I'll, eat, I'll eat their thriving foods all week. And then I'll just splurge at the wedding. Yeah. Like it's about having that autonomy with food and feeling like food loves you and you love yeah. food. It's complete. It's, it's intuitive eating and it's having like that body awareness of what you need in that moment. Sometimes in that moment, in, in a moment, you go like, I just really like need to fuel myself with something really nutritious in this moment. I think I just really want to eat a really big salad and that's perfectly fine. And then there might be another time you're like, I just feel like I really need to have, I don't know, a KFC like burger or something or like chicken from KFC. And I've done this, but, and, and do you know what happens is you, you, you just go, I'm just going to allow myself to have this. I feel like it. And it's perfectly okay to then have that food and then check in again and be like, do you know what? I thought I was going to love that. I actually didn't really love it. It didn't make my mouth feel this way. And my tummy felt this way. I actually, like, I don't know why I really desired that. I think I had a, an asphyxiation with it from a memory or it's a nostalgic mm. thing or whatever it is. And it's like, and you'll be on this journey of constantly just being like open to exploring how food makes you feel and then bringing awareness to what that result was and then continually shifting toward how you want to feel every day. And that's, you know, some days it's going to go the right way and some days it's not. <laughs> I love that. I really love that. And I think it's interesting too that people put so much pressure on themselves to like not have the chocolate or to not do the thing. And um, I'll actually, I haven't shared this. I don't think I've shared this before. I've shared my termination story on the show before, but the night before I was having the termination surgery, I called my best friend and it was like 9.30. I was standing out the front of the supermarket and I was like, I'm about to make a really bad emotional eating decision and I just need you to tell me that it's okay because I was in such an emotional state, right? And I brought... I don't eat dairy because it doesn't sit well in my body, but sometimes when I'm on holiday, I enjoy some ice cream. Um, but I ate a whole wheel of brie cheese, a whole <laughs> fucking wheel of brie cheese. All I did is I brought a bag of corn chips. I brought all this smoked salmon and I brought a whole wheel of brie cheese. And I, I came home, I cut it up. I put all the pieces on the corn chips and I ate the whole lot of all of it. <laughs> <laughs> And um, she's like, that's not even bad food, Gemma. And I was like, yeah, but to me, I know that that's going to make me really bloated. Like I know that doesn't, doesn't feel great serve me. But I was also like, I'm making an emotional eating decision. This feels great for me. I'm feeling really fucking emotional right now. I can honor that. And 
I'll probably feel shit tomorrow anyway. So let's just eat the food that makes me feel really soulful. <laughs> and um, yeah, so you go. I was going to say, we've been emotionally eating since the day we were born. We cried. Mum gave us her boob. It's normal and natural to feel that way. It's that when emotional eating is your only tool in the toolkit for managing difficult emotions, that's when it can get out of hand. It's perfectly normal to have it as one of your tools that you may just go to every now and again. And in that moment, you know what? fair enough. Like what you were going through was hard. And if that's what you needed in the moment, like go for it. Yeah. And know that you're making those decisions. Don't numb yourself from it. Yes. Last thing um, we can add to this and then we can move on. Cause I've got another question for you before we wrap up is I, when I work with my preconception planning clients, I'm like, start working on your food behavior now. So that when you get to pregnancy and you're getting to those cravings and you have that relationship with food to be able to go, okay, is this an emotional craving? Is this really my body craving it? Or is this something that my body's asking for, but I actually don't like the ethics of this food or Mm. I haven't eaten this food in eight years. The more you can work on that solid relationship with food, it's going to seriously pay you forever. And it's such a, it's a challenging thing, but it can be so easy too. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that the more work you do before you fall pregnant, the better, because then when you get into that nauseous phase and you either don't know what you want to eat or you want to eat everything, um, (laughs) you want to be armed with some sort of good nutrient stores and some good mindsets around food to help you get through that rocky phase. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Now I'd love to ask like a final, like kind of wrap up question to our conversation Mm -hmm. today. Tips for endo warriors. I know you work with a lot of them all the time. So what are your top three to five tips that you would recommend for those women and menstruators who are kind of at that stage where they're just like, I'm fucking sick of this. I'm not getting any help. I don't know where to start. I've done all the things. It's just, I've give up. Yeah. What would you recommend? So many people that get stuck here and, and it's not uncommon that it could, it could, you could be 10 years of dealing with that that feeling of not being heard um, we know that diagnosis can, can take up to 12 years which is just crazy um, a couple of tips for anybody who's maybe like just you know that you're suspicious you have endo or anything like you're kind of just like stuck you don't know where to turn next my first tip is um, just because your first opinion from a doctor um, you know, was a certain opinion, doesn't make it right. It's perfectly acceptable to get two, three, four different opinions if you want to. It's not that you're entitled to go and get more um, information. You know, it, it's, you don't have to listen to the first person. And it's the same with surgery because this is a really big one that um, the first, you know, you, you might go through years of being put on hormonal contraception And then eventually when there is a recognition that maybe this is endometriosis, then surgery becomes the next step. And a lot of people just go and have surgery with the first surgeon they ever saw. And I understand that there's limitations on, you know, you can't afford to see a bazillion different surgeons for different opinions. So I I get that. Um, But before you go in for surgery, do your research around surgery because there's different types of surgery and it's extremely important to have it done with an endo excision specialist. There's a technique called wide excision surgery. Yeah. Wide excision surgery. And this is the most beneficial and gold standard 
technique for doing surgery for endometriosis and very few surgeons actually do it because it's Mm. highly specialized and quite complex so the average gynecologist doing your surgery will use something called ablation technique where they will just burn off the endometriosis this is not effective as a as a strategy um it's like if you were gardening and you just cut the weed you know, if you just cut the leaves off a weed and expect the weed to go away, you've left the roots in and it's just going to keep growing. You have to cut the weed out from the roots and pull it out properly. And that's what excision technique is. Um, And I just, you know, I just see so many people going through two, three, four surgeries and then discovering, oh my God, this whole time I was supposed to be having excision surgery, not ablation surgery. Mm. And it's like the money, the time. Heartbreaking. it's heartbreaking and it really upsets me. And the the, the people who've had three plus surgeries are, the, are often the most common clients that I see because the when you have multiple abdominal surgeries, there's development of scar tissue um, and like nerve damage as well from surgery. So, you know, development of more gastrointestinal issues become a problem. So if we can avoid this, if you're at that beginning place, Um, Do your research on your surgeon, ask them these questions like what kind of technique of surgery are you doing? Um, How many people with endo do you treat? Will you be doing the surgery or your trainee? Um, You know, what's the outcome I can expect from this surgery? So you can understand like what's the symptom benefit I'm going to expect because you might be going in with bloating and diarrhea and constipation and fatigue and expect your surgery to achieve those things for you, but it's not. Surgery does does not address those types of symptoms. So, you know, kind of having that clarity on like, what am I going to get out of this? And I think surgery is beneficial for um, people with endo, but with the right surgeon and the right technique. So I just think that that's really important to say. Um, And the other really big key thing is that um, endo being a whole body condition, it's multifaceted surgery is not going to be the thing that will fix your endo medication is not going to be the thing that will fix your endo diet all by itself is not going to be the thing that fixes your endo and likewise for you know pelvic physiotherapy and psychology because it is multifaceted we actually need to tackle it from multiple different angles and you the best i call this you know, thriving with endo. We don't know how to cure endo, but we know how to make living with endo a whole lot better and improve quality of life. And to get to that kind of stage of thriving with endo, it's going to take a number of years. It's not going to be a linear journey. Some, you know, months you'll feel like you're taking huge leaps forward and then there'll be some setbacks and that's normal. It's all about just continuing to make progress. Um, and, and tackling it from these different angles. So you may have your medical management that's working for you. Great. If it's not, you know, looking outside of that to diet, pelvic physiotherapy or psychology, because all of these modalities have been shown to be really effective for managing symptoms Um, and keep it simple. Don't try to do it all at once. I, I explain to people that they should break it down into seasons. So pick out what is thinking about what are the most impacting symptoms for you right now and tackling those with that whatever that health professional might be focusing on that for like three to six months and then you know when you feel like you've ticked that part off then you can move on to the next practitioner because 
remember that practitioners will all give you homework. <laughs> so if you try to see everybody at once, you'll be so overwhelmed with all of the strategies and the homework and the things. So just one thing at a time and know that it's not going to be a magic pill overnight, but doing it is going to be so worth it and it's going to change your life. Amazing tips and doing it and taking the time to do it means you're going to instill the habits that you'll have forever and they won't become, they won't be habits anymore. They will become just part of your life. Totally. That's it. If you try to rush these things, it's going to feel like you have homework, you know, it's meant to be a layering of shifting um, your lifestyle, shifting your habits. And eventually these things do become your way of living and your way of being. And it doesn't feel like you're doing any work, Mm -hmm. but it does take some time to achieve that. So being patient is important. Patience is a virtue, but yes, it's very (laughs) key. Um, amazing tips. Thank you so much for sharing. They're so transparent and exactly what people really need to hear. So thank you for doing that. This has been amazing. I love chatting with you. We're going to have to do this again. Um, Christy, how can people find you though? I've got one more question, but before I get there, how can people connect with you? If they're listening to this and like this, she sounds like someone I need to talk to, or I need to follow her. Where can they find you? Where's the best place that you hang out? I would say the very best place is Instagram. I am putting out content there three times per week, stories every single day. Um, my handle is at endometriosis.dietitian. Um, and you can also find me at my website. So that's christyleenutrition.com. Uh, and if you are interested in learning more about nutrition, you don't know where to start, I have a free masterclass for anybody who's interested in learning more and going that little bit deeper. So I share all about the strategy that I use for supporting my clients with endometriosis Um, using diet and you can find that either on my Instagram link in bio you can come to my website and you'll see it there Um, so yeah come along and join me thank you I'm going to pop that link in the in the show notes too so people can find it straight from the from the episode this has been amazing like I said I love chatting with you and I'm excited to hear what you have to answer to this next question that I ask all of our guests, we're going to switch gears. And I want you to think back, Christy, to that younger menstrual self when your mom didn't tell you about your period and you came home from school. But um, what are three things you wish you had have known then about your cycle that you now know today about your cycle? Hmm. I guess um, that probably that the most important thing would have been about the phases I think that I thought your menstrual cycle was just your period. Um, and I think that that should just be like basic common knowledge that everybody really? should know. So I wish I'd known about the four phases. Um, I think I wish I had even known more about like cervical fluid or cervical mucus because it, for a long time that was a huge mystery to me. Like what is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like why is that not explained? <laughs> My gosh. Um, What's the third thing? I mean, if I was to be like a little bit selfless here, I just wish that there was more education around how much pain is normal, um, how much flow is normal as well. I think like for me, obviously, like I, I, I didn't have to worry too much about pain, but I just think about all of my clients and had they have all known that what, how much pain was normal they could have gotten such an earlier diagnosis and had interventions so much earlier in life. And that would have saved years of trauma. Mm. Uh, and I just think that that would have just completely transformed 
the entire experience of endometriosis. So, you know, we have some exciting programs that did come through. I don't know if you heard about the PPEP talk um, program. It was a school school program um, that educated menstrual health endometriosis PCOS um it was like a bit of a pilot thing that they did and I just thought that was the best thing ever um the best idea that that was yeah an investment by the government only about a couple years ago wow um yeah I yeah I could talk about this forever I wish we got more sex education help as well (laughs) just all of it we just need all of it it needs a whole another school just for all the things down there like the down there ed or something I don't know um, did you get healthy Harold going off yes. before we wrap up? Did you, I've always had a vision and I'm just going to share the vision right now of being or having a van and driving around Australia and it being about menstrual education. Yeah. Like healthy Harold without the stupid, like Muppet for those who don't know, it was like a big bus or a van, a big like trailer in a truck. And it was Harold who was a Muppet. And he was the educator of health and he would pop his head out through a little hole in the wall and he'd all sit in there as like a seven or eight year old and learn about health. And I think that was a great initiative from the government, but there was no education about women's health or men's health or any of that. And I think that we could definitely have a big red furry van or bus going around Australia, educating young menstruators and those who support menstruators. So that would be great. I'm, I I have really fond memories of, of Healthy Harold. I think that the idea of like the engagement with puppets and doing all of that is, you know, I just remember that like the sky in that bus, like it was like a starry night on the ceiling. I just remember that. There was so many magical things about that experience. It's such an opportunity to like educate children about this. Mm. But going back to what you said at the very beginning, it is up to the parents as well. And I really look forward to being able to completely change the narrative for my children one day and from, you know, an early age for boys and girls explaining exactly what's going on Um, and, yeah, yeah, make things different because I don't want our kids to have to go through that again. Hear ye, hear ye. (laughs) I love that. So thank you for being a crusader. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all of your beautiful, juicy wisdom. I've loved this. We'd love to have you back again at some stage. And um, I'm so grateful for your time. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into every episode of the Well Woman Podcast. For everything we mentioned in today's episode, you can find this in the show notes over at wellsome.com forward slash podcast. If this episode excited you, please hit follow on Spotify, which means all of my episodes will pop up in your feed weekly so you never miss a weekly drop. I'd love you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts too. Love this episode? Come and follow me over on Instagram at wellsom underscore Gemily. Say hi and share what you've taken away from this episode with me. Now, is there a bestie, sister, or a friend who you know who might be fed up, frustrated, and confused with their cycles? Are they ready to join you in awakening their cyclical essence too? Well, take a screenshot of this podcast episode, share it on your socials, email it, text it, or any way you need to get it to them. So together, we can all live in flow, harmony, and balance with our cycles. Now, until next time, beautiful, get connected, listen to your body, and remember, body confidence all begins with living in tune with your menstrual cycle.